Hello and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato and this is Round 7, the Belgian Grand Prix. It was another win for Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes in a race of potential and what-ifs on the strategy front, with an early safety car neutralising almost everyone's race and turning the Grand Prix into a procession of tyre management. Pierre Gasly was just about the only driver to try something different, and his Contra strategy was rewarded with a decent haul of points. But further down the field, there was no strategy that could save Ferrari, which fumbled its way to its worst race in a decade, painfully slow and out of the points. To debrief the race that could have been, I'm joined by Autosport F1 reporter and friend of the show, Luke Smith. Luke, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Michael. Yeah, I've sort of uh, maybe recovered from that snooze fest that we had to go through <laughs> yesterday. Um, definitely not the most exciting uh, Formula One race that we've had uh, of, uh, well, in in, in, uh, in recent memory, I think. It's, uh, yeah, not, not much to uh, really dig into in terms of uh, wild on-track action or overtakes or anything like that. But, um, yeah, still plenty of good talking points, I think, came out of the weekend. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay, though. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm like you, survived, I, I guess, the snorfest. It was a little bit later in my time of zone, course, so there yeah. definitely was a battle <laughs> on my hands to uh, stick around with that one. But look, even if we don't have heaps to talk about, given the uh, situation, maybe we can even delve into a hypothetical strategy report <laughs> podcast. We'll see how we go. But let's set the background anyway, because this, of course, is a racetrack. Obviously, everyone looks forward to. It's a historic circuit, a very uh, pretty to look at circuit. Certainly, you get that impression from the TV. One of the few circuits I think you do get a you know, a nice impression from the television, at least anyway. But it is, in some senses, deceptively difficult because we talk about this being a track that's just very fast and we see a lot of shots of very long straights and slipstream overtaking. But getting the balance right for car setup is quite difficult, as well, several teams showed. Yeah, it is, yeah, because you've really got, I think, straight the balance between do you want to go for a uh, low downforce, trimmed out uh, setup that'll do you good for the, the first and third sectors. And we saw a team such as Renault, I think they did that very, very effectively and were hitting some very, very high uh, speed trap speeds and sort of getting towards the end of the Kemmel straight. Um, or do you want to sort of put more of your eggs in sex two as, as a basket like do you want to sort of try and go for that higher downforce really get the car working through the twisty stuff uh, that's something mercedes was able to do very very effectively just mainly because just the the power unit is so good and the car is so strong in a straight line anyway they can whack on a load of downforce and still be pretty respectable um so they uh, yeah they did very very well uh sort of hitting that compromise and uh, it is that is always a challenge and i think the other thing that teams were looking at for this weekend was uh, the uh, tire selection for from Pirelli so we went a, a step softer um, than what we've seen recently to sort of the, the 70th anniversary Grand Prix uh, tyre picks which uh, I'm sure that strategy report was absolutely fantastic because there have been so much to talk about um, and I think it maybe sort of there were hopes that okay if we go back to that kind of tyre selection like could that give a repeat could we see sort of Max Verstappen and Red Bull come into contention once again um, and it just didn't work out that way unfortunately <laughs> there were some reasons if you just look at the surface of the results to think that this wasn't a dominant Mercedes win. You know, we've seen some massive Mercedes wins in our time in what's approaching a decade, I guess, oh. which is terrifying to think. And, you know, even Paul Lewis Hamilton was flawless, but it was half a second. And you heard, there's probably more of an argument to, to make that Valtteri Bottas underperformed a little bit necessarily. So, but then when you do dive down into it, and you, you touched on it there, Mercedes was the high downforce setup car in this situation, <laughs> whereas Red Bull Racing was the lower one. 
it really just underlines how powerful that engine is. We're going to get into talk, I guess, in the next couple of weeks more broadly about qualifying engine modes and all that kind of thing. But is under the surface this actually a more terrifying Mercedes win than it perhaps looks? Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. I think because it's a race that was. Uh heavy tyre management as we'll get into just because of the early pit stop and everyone had to make a one-stop strategy work so therefore they weren't ever really gonna push like there was never really a need to there were a couple of times we heard over the radio that Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas got told okay push now and just to open that gap gap up a little bit to Max Verstappen but otherwise it was all very much in hand and very in in control and even towards the end when both drivers were reporting uh, sort of a a few vibrations or a little bit of an issue with their tyres and they were still like they, they were okay and Hamilton said after the race like the tyre was probably all right in the end so it's uh yeah i would agree with that like i think this the w11 car i think it's it's a it's an app it's just uh i i think it will end up being the greatest f1 car in f1 history if the rest of the season goes as and next year of course Mm -hmm. uh, go as it's uh seeming like it will um and i think it's weekends like this where yeah there's no like 20 second margin or anything over the field but at no point did they ever really really stretch the legs of that car I don't think because they didn't have to and they didn't need to so uh, yeah I think that's, that's a good way to put it sort of very deceptively dominant from Mercedes I feel like we're saying all of these things every year though I, don't, I feel like every year is Mercedes best car but I suppose that does speak to the fact they do raise the bar pretty much every season at this point this race was predicated or decided i suppose on a couple of different moments one was the start lewis hamilton accidentally getting a great exit from la source by making a mistake really which forced valtteri bottas to back off a little bit and lost some momentum up to that critical lacum breaking section which meant that at least for the first part of this race the the battle for the lead was done. Then, of course, there was subsequently the safety car restart. We'll talk about the, the safety car in a moment that Hamilton aced. But then there was this long final stint, and we started to see the tyres go off a little bit, particularly on the Mercedes cars. Lewis Hamilton uh, talking about having no grip, having no tyres, as he, as he occasionally tends to in a race. It's not the first time we've seen Mercedes have these tyre troubles, of course. They've had some fairly significant ones in recent races, and... You could almost argue it's a little bit of a trait of that car to wear its tyres quite heavily. Is this grabbing it too much? Is it too ambitious to say that this might be, if there is one, a Mercedes weak spot? I think every week that Mercedes have a slight wobble, we're like, oh, there's a weakness. Finally, we found something in the W11 that doesn't work as it should. But um, no, I think it's... uh, I think... I think what happened at Silverstone with the late tyre failures, I think that has been something that that hit Mercedes hard. Like even though they they still won that race remarkably with Lewis Hamilton on three wheels, they because of the way Mercedes learns from its defeats and really learns lessons, it it, it that is like at the back of its mind right the way through. I think the rest of the season now it will be. So I think there was just that concern of oh what what if there's a repeat? Like what if the same thing happens again? So and I think the fact that they were forced into that pit stop so early, it left them sort of sweating a little bit like well look, we, we we may end up sort of going down a similar path because it was I mean my autosport colleague uh, Alex Kalanorka said that this was basically the, the British Grand Prix minus the tyre failures <laughs> and that's very true because it was a race where they were all forced into an early stop they all went to make to basically manage their tyres get to the end um, and it really sort of did push the Pirelli tyres I think to the absolute end of their life and in terms of in terms of what is uh, what is really possible um, but yeah I, yeah I don't think I don't think we can read a huge amount into um, Mercedes having some added tyre woes here uh, beyond anything else. I think it was, uh, yeah, they they were in trouble. I think Red Bull were in trouble as well a little bit towards the end. So it's, uh, yeah, for both of them, I think it was, um, yeah, 
It wasn't Mercedes-specific, let's say. There was some potential, some missed potential, I guess, for strategy in this race. I mean, we had Mercedes and Max Verstappen starting on the medium tyre, but Red Bull Racing had effectively split their strategies with Alex Albon starting on the soft tyre. And we also had differences in setups as well that was guarding against the rain. Mercedes having added more downforce to the car to guard against wet weather and Red Bull Racing sort of compromising a bit. Still the lower downforce package, but adding on a little bit more than they wanted to, a little bit more than other parts of the field. But a lot of this was ultimately neutralized by that safety car after lap 10, which meant everyone went, or just about everyone, I should say, we'll talk about Pierre Gasly in a moment, went for that hard tire and that long final stint of management. But we did get just a little bit of that potential towards the end of the race, didn't we, with Daniel Ricciardo in the very slippery Renault. They'd 100% gone for the low downforce setup, forgetting about the rain, I suppose. And towards the end of the race, with those hard tyres on the front-running cars wearing away because they were running with more downforce that would have been helpful in the rain, Ricciardo was catching right up to them. In the final few laps, there was a potential for him to actually disrupt the podium. And then with the last lap of his race, he set the fastest lap of the race, which showed that obviously he had a lot of life left still in his tyres, but that striking that compromise between high downforce and low downforce in the conditions as well was quite difficult. Yeah, it did, definitely. And I think that... um after the race, obviously, we heard the complaints from from the front three drivers about their concerns about vibrations and degradation. But Ricardo was like, "Yeah, look, Deg's pretty low. Like, I'm doing okay." And as as you said, evidenced by him getting the, the fastest lap on the final lap of the race, and that was a it was a massively impressive display from him and from Renault. But it did also show that if you really trim the car out and go, "Look, we're going to go for absolute top speed and really sort of focus on the the uh, first sector and final sector." what benefits that offers i mean not only is a rocket ship in a straight line not only does it mean that you can make all of these like really good passes um but also it means that tires are so much less of a concern in closing stages and obviously you never go into a race anticipating that oh we're all going to pit on lap 11 and really have to manage to the end so you can't really sort of gamble on that but i guess it's, a, it's an added benefit and an added consideration and i think ricardo he was probably left brewing the time that he lost uh, behind pierre gasly because he uh, took a little while longer to get ahead of him after gasly obviously stayed out as we'll get on to and you just got to wonder like with the amount of time he lost there did that maybe stunt him at the end and mean that he wasn't close enough to to Verstappen to really really try and take it to the Red Bull have an attack and uh, maybe try and get that podium uh, <laughs> tattoo bet with Cyril Abitbull uh, across the line I've never seen a, a paddock get around the prospect of a tattoo <laughs> quite like everyone has this year but it would be very exciting to see this had this interesting and there's a subplot here that's been continuing through the season effect on the battle for the lead did Ricardo quite aside from the fact that maybe he could have had a podium late in the race but it was that him being so unusually close to the top three because it is rare we see anyone kind of inter- become an interloper into that battle it meant that there was no safety for an extra pit stop for the top three in particular in this instance Max Verstappen because with the tyres wearing it would have been a pretty straightforward strategy call for Red Bull Racing to bring him in and, and see what could happen maybe pull Valtteri Bottas in, for example, for to cover him off and see if that could shake the tree a little bit. But yet again, potentially, because uh, it was difficult to know exactly how this might have played out had there not been a safety car, but potentially Red Bull Racing really missing having a rear gunner to Verstappen in this situation to perhaps, let's say, have held up Daniel Ricciardo's charge a little bit, to have slowed him down a little bit. Alex Albon still isn't able to play that role. And as a result, Red Bull Racing was locked in to to follow Mercedes, essentially, for the duration of that long second stint. 
Albon had a better race, I suppose, in this Grand Prix, really on balance in a car that couldn't really pass the Renaults. But this seems like another example of one of those those stinging effects that Red Bull Racing felt quite a lot with, with Gasly last year before they dropped him. Yeah, it is. And I think it's only because, I think with Gasly, because Red Bull was that much closer to Mercedes, you could see that Gasly was actually costing them race wins and the chance to really fight with Mercedes. And obviously it's a little bit different this year. So I think the pressure on Albon is maybe a, a bit reduced, but it's the same principle, as you say. It is that if they'd had that rig on it, if they'd had the second Red Bull in fourth place, as it should have been, um, then there would have been the buffer to Ricardo that would have opened up that pit window, given Verstappen the chance to make a second stop and, and maybe put some pressure on because right the way through the race, Mercedes were really concerned about the undercut because it is so powerful at Spa. They were really concerned that Verstappen would be in for a second time and that explained why they told Bottas in the very early stages of the race not to use his, his overtake and that they'd agreed not to use it between the two Mercedes cars because Mercedes needed that in their back pocket just in case Verstappen got close enough um, and they needed to fend him off. So the lack of a rear gunner meant that Ricardo, as you said, was just sitting just within Verstappen's pit window. And Red Bull were like, well, we can't really afford to give up a uh, track position given how good Ricardo was going on, on his tyres as well. So that definitely did complicate things. And I think it, it also kind of made the race a little bit even more dull for us because <laughs> it would have been really cool to have Verstappen go for that second stop and then Bottas would have probably had to follow suit. And then Hamilton might have gone, well... I can do it as well and go for fast lap and try and get the bonus point and whatever. So there's there's like re- there was a real good uh, potential for that. So yeah, a shame definitely because I think it would have been cool to see that and I think it's uh, it's something that Red Bull, although they're not paying a huge price right now, it is something that is surely just ticking over in the back of their mind. Let's talk about the driver he swapped seats with this time last year, Pierre Gasly, who was really the only driver to run the opposite or the contra strategy. Sergio Perez did as well, sort of, but he didn't really do much of a job executing it or the team didn't. We'll talk about him in a second. But Pierre Gasly, the only driver outside the top 10 to start on the hard tyre and end on the medium after a a long first stint. I mean, this was always really going to be a one-stop race. The tyres are a step softer this year, but... You know, already everyone was clearly gravitating towards the harder tyres and track position is so important in Formula One. So likely to be a one-stop race. Did it surprise you that he was the only one that no one else thought to start on the hard tyre and and end on the quicker tyre in that management phase for the rest of the top 10? It did, yeah. And I think we were all very surprised to see that because we kind of expected that him him going on that to... I guess not pass anyone and just sort of sit there and then benefit as people came into pit and him go longer. But it was the complete opposite. I mean, Gasly made a load of really good moves in that opening stint, uh, getting past uh, Sergio Perez, getting past the ailing uh, Charles Leclerc as well, which maybe isn't such a big achievement, but... (laughs) What the hey? I mean, AlphaTauri, the quickest Italian team this weekend, so good on them. And it's, um, it was, yeah, I, I thought it was a absolutely brilliant display from him, like to be able to maximize that hard tie so well and really, really, really run well with it. And I know that teams kind of like looked at all three compounds and went like none of them were a terrible race tire this weekend as we've seen in previous races so they were they were fairly comfortable about running on all of them but the hard in particular I think that was a big surprise to see Gasly start so well on it and run so well on it and uh, yeah you've got to maybe think like did the safety car like ruin hopes of a, of a top five finish even I'm not sure um, it was yeah massively impressive and I think that 
I, I, I just think like Pierre Gasly, like he's been one of the real stars of the season for me. Um, obviously, a year on from the loss of his friend Antoine Hubert as well, I think it was a, a very emotionally charged weekend for Gasly. And he just put all of that into a brilliant display and really deserves a huge amount of credit for it. I thought really good as well, interesting in this strategic sense, was that Alpha Tauri, A, didn't fold to the pressure, I suppose, to pit because by that point, Gasly was up to eight. So they could easily have banked what could have been you know, a couple of points knowing that the second half of this race was going to be more about management than aggression. So not only did they not bow to that pressure, but banked on Gasly being able to make something of it. Interesting too, looking at this strategy in particular, the medium tyre at the end of the race proved very effective for him because while everyone else was managing, he was able to really push it a lot more. It seems like as much as one stop is so preferable in Formula 1 these days because track position is so important that in a midfield that is quite tightly contested, no one tried anything different really in this race. We are going to talk about Sergio Perez in a second, but he's barely different because he really only pitted a couple of laps after the safety. It was a very nothing strategy. But the fact that no one tried anything is in some respects surprising given that Okay, overtaking is difficult in Formula 1, but not so much at Spa if you're running a, a bit more aggressively, as Gasly showed. Yeah, exactly. And you do kind of think it would have been nice to see some some of the teams maybe try that T-stop or, or try and make things a little bit different and shake things up. And again, with the undercut being so powerful, I was maybe a little bit surprised that more 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 teams didn't try that out and, and try and roll the dice a little bit. But I think that it kind of... It just speaks to where F1 is right now, that ultimately the track position is, is the most important thing. And they're all going to sort of just get home on 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 one stop if they absolutely can and um yeah it's it's a shame because i think we do want to see a bit more variety it is cool seeing sort of teams like try that two stop and, and try and sort of claw back positions and really make that um that the the softer tire and the tire delta pay and that's what we saw gasly do obviously with his switch to, to mediums for that second stint like he he was flying and that and that was really really cool but uh, yeah, ultimately, if everyone's on the same page and if everyone's kind of boxed into a corner where it's there's a safety car and you have to pit, then otherwise um, you're a bit cooked, as as was the case for Sergio Perez. Like it's um, yeah, it's disappointing. We want to see a bit more variety just to shake things up. There's been a lot of talk this season about Racing Point for contentious reasons, depending on your point of view, I suppose. This is meant to be the car that is you know maybe third quickest, second quickest, fourth quickest, depending on the circuit and and their execution. This is also a circuit this team normally does extremely well at, but pretty much from the off, Racing Point fumbled this whole weekend. They ended up finishing 9th and 10th. Perez and Stroll on fundamentally the same strategy, Perez stopping after the safety car, just after the safety car for some reason rather than during it. They were worried about tyre life. These no difference of laps made minimal difference in the end to the result. It's strange though, and this is something we've touched on a couple of times in this show, that a team that is normally so precise in execution when they've been in this battle for the midfield with limited resources trying to squeeze the most out of the car this weekend for example used too many soft tires in practice which left them with not enough in qualifying which meant they had one run in q3 which meant they qualified out of place which meant they finished out of place it's sort of almost what was feared wasn't it that more resources might make them sloppy okay this is one race we don't want to judge them (laughs) completely but is this a difficult transition up towards being contenders for this team maybe yeah that's an interesting way to look at it and maybe a bit difficult to hone in on one race and say that sort of is uh, indicative of where they are right now but 
Spa is always where, obviously, the Old Force India team traditionally mm. always went well. You think back to 2009 and Giancarlo Fisichella's pole position run, um, and they, it's just been a great track for, for the Silverstone outfit. I mean, even Racing Point's first ever Grand Prix um, in 2018 following the collapse of Force India. It was even there. That's when I believe they locked out the second row of the grid and we saw Ocon sort of having a look up the inside <laughs> of uh, both Hamilton and Vettel on the run to Lake Homme. And it was, uh, I think he said like another 30 metres and he'd have sent it. And that'd have been such a cool story. And heading into this weekend with such a radically different car concept for this year, um, both drivers were asked like, well, do you think that's going to, do you think we're going to lose sort of some of the, uh, I guess, sort of old Force India success at Spa and they said no they said we think we'll still run well here and this should suit our car and that just wasn't the case and as you say sort of the operational errors made it very obvious that it's things weren't entirely perfectly run this weekend um looking at the the medium runs in Q2 I mean there have been races this year where they've been so far ahead they've been able to run mediums in Q2 and comfortably get through and that's that's crazy for a team that has sort of been like really mired in F1's midfield for so long so that was a massive come down that they had. They ran the mediums and they were like, look, we don't, we don't stand a chance of getting through to Q3. So therefore we need to go onto the softs. Um, and then, yeah, on, on terms of strategy, like it just, it just made no sense. And everyone was kind of going, well, what, what are they doing with Perez here? Like if you're a, someone like Pierre Gasly, for example, and even to some extent, I guess the, the top three drivers, like if they'd have said, we're not going to pit under the safety car, I want to keep going on this stint to get a fresher set of tires later on, then that makes complete sense. I mean, Gasly showed perfectly, I think what the, what you could do with that but with Perez like it was just a case of they kept him out for another seven laps I'm like okay in you come now and then obviously he drops the last and he did a good fire back admittedly but also that racing point like it is so much quicker than obviously the Ferrari power cars this weekend so siding up the order was never really that was never really in doubt but yeah you just kind of think I think it's just a weekend where they've got to sort of look at what happened and say look we may have this really really quick car but I'm not sure they've really maximised what they're doing with it so far this season. I mean, you've got McLaren are now up to third place in the Constructors' Championship, for example. And that is uh, that is really where Racing Point should be comfortably, even without the points penalty. Weird as well that if the concern was making it to the end, that the team, in deciding that it was only going to pit one car didn't choose Sergio Perez as the car to pit behind the safety car and go that long stint, given he's the driver that is, of course renowned for stretching the tyres as long as possible. I thought that was strange. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, I mean, Lance Stroll has, I think, been excellent so far this mm. season. I think he, he deserves sure. a lot of credit for what he's done. But as you said, like, Perez, he's the, he's a tyre whisperer. Like, he really knows how to make him work. So if you want anyone to maximise the tyre advantage, surely Checo would be the guy. But may, maybe that's what they thought. Maybe they'll like, well, if anyone's going to, like... Yeah, we've dropped the ball here, but if anyone's going to make the most of it, it will be Checo. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, very good point. Very strange pick. Yeah, well, look, it's one to put behind them. Finally, if we're going to talk about races being put behind, we've got to talk about Ferrari briefly. I mean, their worst weekend in a decade, I think it's fair to say, uh, since 2010, I think, to finish out of the points on merit for no reason other than you're slow is not regularly Ferrari territory. It's been unpacked in lots of different ways why the car is so slow. Fundamentally, it's a lack of power for that agreement reached with the FIA over the the off-season. The car is also obviously not very good. But even when it comes to the fact, and they predicted they weren't going to be powerful this weekend, maybe not as bad as they ended up being. They didn't think that was going to be the case, but they knew it was going to be difficult. At no point did it feel like they were sort of hunkering down and just going to try and squeeze the most out of it. I mean, Charles Leclerc starting outside the top 10 on the soft tyre 
you know, to, to essentially commit to a two-stop strategy with a car that can't pass, that's not fast enough, seems very, uh, let's say, left field, doesn't it? I think that's putting it very kindly, yeah. Um, <laughs> Leclerc said that even when he had DRS open, he wasn't matching the mm. power that cars not using DRS had and the straight line speed, which is a, that, that just shows just how bad that Ferrari is in a straight line. And he said going into the weekend, we expect to suffer, but I don't think anyone quite saw it being as, as bad as it was. Because, uh, yeah, starting on the soft tie, that did allow him to make a really good start. And he was he was running as high as eighth at one point, And we sort of like saw Ferrari overtake a racing point. I was like, hang on a minute, like, this is a, a complete plot twist. And then I think he lost something like four positions in five laps and very quickly dropped backwards. And yeah, for, I mean, Ferrari spent five laps of the whole race in, with a car in the top 10. And all five of those were Charles Leclerc. Sebastian Vettel never ran in the points, which is just, it's remarkable. And it's astonishing how dramatic this come down has been. I think the reasons for it are pretty clear to sort of add up and see. And I think that, as you say, though, if Ferrari know the situation they're facing, they've just got to basically roll the dice and play to what strengths they can. And we saw that um, at Silverstone when uh, for the 70th anniversary Grand Prix when Charles Leclerc ran that one-stop strategy that everyone thought was completely out of the question. But he made it work, and that was fantastic. And again, that got him, uh, what, fourth place. Same thing Sebastian Vettel did in Spain. Ferrari got into a position where they were like, well, we either pit you, and you've got to try and overtake these cars with a, a car that can't overtake, or we keep you out, you get a trap position. At worst, you're just going to drop back. But it's it's worth the risk. And that absolutely paid off handsomely. Like, it got him seventh place. And I think that is where Ferrari have got to be creative and got to think outside the box. And if they'd have started on both cars on hards, for example, and done similar to what Gasly did, that, that could have, I think, at least got them into the top 10 for a little bit, got some trap position. And then you maybe have on some more safety cars or just things working in your favour. But the way it was, like, they literally... I mean, as you say, like, Leclerc literally ran on the same strategy as the top 10 runners in a car that is just, it, it can't manage its tyres, it can't um, overtake anybody. So what is the point? Like, what does that achieve? And I, yeah, I just think it's crazy. Like Ferrari, I think they've got to, we heard yet more chatter between the drivers and the pit wall about strategy and Leclerc saying, yeah, well, the two strategies you're offering me, plan B and plan C, they're, they're basically the same. So like, what are we going to do? And it's, it's such a mess there right now. It just doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't make sense why they just go. We're very weak in all these areas, but <laughs> we're just going to accept that. That's what we do. Is it the worst possible situation? They've got a car that's not very competitive. They don't. I mean, they understand the root cause of it, but don't fully understand how to ameliorate it in some way that makes them somewhat competitive. And then have to rely on strategy. I mean, if there's any weak spot in Ferrari, it seems to be strategy. And we've seen, as you touched on there. In multiple races now, Sebastian Vettel just getting annoyed in the car that there doesn't seem to be a proactive strategy at play. And look, I guess to be fair to the Ferrari pit wall in this race, it didn't seem like there was a lot that they could have done strategy-wise to make that car better. But it does feel a little bit dear in the headlights. And in an area that's not typically a Ferrari strength, you wonder what can be gained from particularly the next couple of races, which are going to be similar levels of pain for them i suspect they are yeah and for their home races monza and then mugello ferrari's 1000th mm. race the title sponsor they've got a, a ferrari grandstand we're gonna have fans at the race for the first time this year and it, it's all just like that's very concerning that they are they are going to be in a, a big 
they're, they're going to be in a world of pain. Like, there's no other uh, other way to describe it, I don't think. Like, it's going to be very, very difficult for them. And they do just need to try and find these areas they can maximise and, um, and exploit to try and get some kind of advantage. And right now, it does appear to be that, that the only way they sort of, like, stumble into a good strategy is when the drivers go, look, let's do this. Like, Vettel, as we saw in Spain, was fantastic at managing the race. And But that isn't... That's not, that's not his job. Like, he should have Ferrari telling him what's going on. There should be the confidence and... Again, you've got to, both parties have said there's no tension, there's no added sort of like frostiness between them. But Vettel, I mean, he's not, he has not been well treated by Ferrari. And we saw again in second practice last weekend that Vettel didn't say a word to Ferrari on the radio throughout the session. Mm. And it's a similar thing that I think has happened in qualifying a couple of times this year. There's not a word of, of, of back and forth. Like it's all just one way Ferrari talking to the driver. And again, Vettel said like, oh, you can't read much into that. There's no added tension. I see the guys all the time. And like, we talk all the time in the garage. So to be a bit quiet, like what's the big deal? But I just think it's, it, it is noteworthy. It's strange. And it is just, I think it sums up where they are right now. Like there's not really any redeeming aspects of that car or that team in its performances right now. And I think it is, uh, it's a big shame because I think we do want to see a competitive Ferrari, but also I think that they at least could try and be a little bit more creative and sort of think outside the box. Like if they're not going to be quick on track, if they're not going to overtake cars, how else can we try and haul this car up the grid? And really strategy is like their only option right now and getting a bit lucky. Um, at Spa, I don't think they would have scored any points even if they had started on hards and, and, and fought their way up the order. But, I mean, they might have be beaten the Ferrari customer teams at least. Like They, they might be in Alfa Romeo with Kimi Raikkonen taking his time, as we all very well know from that Sky Sports advert. Um, but they didn't. And it's just like, it's yeah. It's, I think, a, a huge come down from where they were last year. The biggest come down, you might say. From winning in 2019 to being five seconds from just about the back of the pack, It was all pain for Ferrari, and it probably will be for a few races yet, but mostly pleasure for Mercedes, certainly if you're Lewis Hamilton, after a pretty straightforward Belgian Grand Prix, and it was a pleasure to look back on it with you, Luke. Uh, Nice one, mate. Thank you. That was Autosport F1 reporter Luke Smith. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus we're on all of your socials. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. My name's Michael Aminato. You can look me up at Michael Aminato on Twitter. And brace yourselves, Ferrari fans, because next week I'll be back to review the Italian Grand Prix.